This is People Who Play, a show about the art of playful living. I'm Emma Warrillow, researcher, writer and part-time mermaid. And I'm Ben Martin, content creator and nostalgia junkie. Join us once a week as we discuss our playful approach to parenting, work and marriage. Plus, look out for extra guest episodes. We believe that fun should be part of the everyday and we are here to support any grown-ups who want to grow down and avoid the onset of serious-itis that kicks in in adulthood. Find me on Instagram at playful underscore den. And if you'd like more of my content, you can subscribe to my Patreon. Just search for my name, Emma Warrillow, and get access to exclusive podcasts, insights and updates. And for all your retro feels, find me on Instagram at BenFlyingRetro. We really do appreciate all your likes, subscribes, follows and shares. These digital high fives really mean a lot to us and help us to grow the show. Okay, let's get on with the episode. It's playtime. Hello, welcome back. It's me, Emma Warrillow, your host of People Who Play. This is episode 39. It is a guest episode and today I am delighted to share this conversation that I had with Joe McMeachin. Joe is an award-winning consultant children's physiotherapist and author of the number one bestseller, Equipping Send Children for Life. Joe is on a mission to change the narrative, to change the story around send children and our fantastically awesome neurodiverse kids she is doing all sorts of things by going right to the top of government at the legislative level and day to day she is also experiencing this at home she is first-hand experiencing it she's mum to autistic and adhd children I was fascinated to have this conversation with Joe. I have been doing my own research and pondering on the role of play for neurodiverse kids. It is really my uh, deep core belief and understanding that play does not discriminate. Play is completely universal. We all need it for our development, for our growth, for our understanding and most importantly what I'm kind of interested in is our humanity and it doesn't matter who you are um, we all need it and can benefit from it but of course we are all wired differently I think that is one of the most interesting and beautiful things about being human that our minds work in different ways therefore how we play what we're interested in playing what fun is for us, what we get curious about, our needs to play out different things is of course going to be different to each of us. And Jo shares with me some of her experience of running her really successful and very pioneering non-profit organisation that provides fun back to nature opportunities for therapy, play and learning. This is play-centered, child-led learning um, outdoors. She teaches me what therapy ponies are, which I found hugely insightful and just really fascinating about the role of a horse in teaching social skills. Um, jo is brilliant. She wants to change the narrative of raising these children, raising these beautifully neurodiverse children from the current script that it is today and she acknowledges and goes into some of the structural walls that families 
just hit up against to helping families write their own sen story. Her book has supported hundreds of families and professionals to change their approach to the special education needs narrative. Please share this with anyone that you think it will be helpful for. Go and check out Jo on Instagram. Go and have a look at her book. All the details are in the show notes. So go there for all of the information. I'm going to stop talking now because this is an important conversation and one that I hugely valued. Here it is. Here is Jo McMeachin. Joe, hello. Welcome to the podcast. It's so good to have you here. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to chat with you. I can't wait to learn from you. Um, and you know, you you're going to be really generous with your knowledge. And there are so many parents who listen to people who play. And I know this is going to be really, really relevant. I am asked so much so often to make content around neurodiversity, autism, ADHD, and play. Um, and you are the perfect person for me to have this conversation with because it's not um it's not within my expertise but i know it is within yours so can we start there by uh you sharing a little bit about your background and and perhaps how you got into to the world that you are working in and advocating for today sure so um my background is as a children's physio and I always say that I am that by background because I feel like a wearer of many, many hats all of the time. Um, so uh, I started out working with uh, children and young people with additional needs as a physiotherapist and um, my area of specialism is neurology. So geek at heart, really anything to do with brain science and neurology is my thing. Um, but I suppose my journey with neurodiversity evolved um, when I had my own children. My youngest son is autistic ADHD, um, and he's had some really significant barriers for access to education as a result of his needs. Um, and we've sort of navigated our own path through the education and health systems with that. Um, and my eldest son is undiagnosed but definitely neurodiverse definitely ADHD um, and they are like chalk and cheese the two of them which I guess is a real um, uh, example of the spectrum I suppose of need that exists out there um, so my role as a physio kind of evolved a little bit more as I understood more from a parenting point of view as a parented children myself who were neurodivergent um, and uh, we've discovered an awful lot about the diversity in our household as uh, we've kind of trodden that path. So um, that evolved the work that I did into supporting more families, more parents, carers, professionals with understanding neurodiversity, with understanding the sensory systems and how to support neurodivergent children and young people. Um, and last year we opened our CIC, our nonprofit organisation, Send Story, um, in order to rewrite the narrative, rewrite that experience, that story that just gets told over and over again for a lot of neurodivergent families um, about difficulties with access to health and education. So we work outdoors with horses and in nature to deliver play-based activities, child-led activities with real um, experiential learning and play at the centre of it now. Um, and I'm on a bit of a mission really, I suppose, to share more about the brain, share more about our understanding of, of how diverse each of our natures are and being able to really kind of nurture that nature. 
um, in each and every one of us because it makes such a difference with what we do and how we are and our own self-awareness and our well-being as well so yeah wearer of many hats both professionally and personally I guess yeah wow what an incredible story and with Sen's story you said you were trying to change a narrative to something that was more meaningful perhaps more reflective more optimistic positive of of the experience that can be had what what is the narrative that you're moving away from what is the the things that parents and families are told or experience or come up against in the structure that you are trying to kind of shatter and and move away from so our own experiences were that um, because for neurodivergent children, young people and adults, everything's fairly invisible. What happens inside and how much kind of processing and conversations, internal conversations and experiences happen is not always visible on the outside. Um, and, and it isn't just about neurodiversity, it's about disability in general, really, particularly for our children and young people within education. Um, and our mainstream education settings in particular aren't set up to allow for that diversity of need. And so what happens and the stories that were being told to me over and over again by the families that I worked with that eventually became my own story were narratives of failure and inequality, essentially difficulties with access to support, difficulties with access to understanding um, and embracing the need for doing things a little bit differently. You know, not all of our children are designed to to sit down at a desk and to write and learn in a particular way. Um, And my experience through delivering therapy and as a parent is that play and experiential learning sitting at the centre of that was so much healthier for diverse brains. And we were able to create these really enriching experiences that our education systems in particular don't really embody particularly well. And so that narrative experience that families were, were having that ended up being my own was that because children were failed in the way that they were supported to learn and access experiential learning and play and be understood for the nature of who they they are um it had a huge and catastrophic impact for well-being both for um parents and carers supporting their children but also for the children themselves so my sense story if you like is um that my youngest son, Arthur, he's now seven, but when he just turned six, in fact, on his sixth birthday, because birthdays are a big thing for him, lots of expectation around birthday that can't always be fulfilled. Um, uh, on his sixth birthday, he he couldn't get into school anymore. And we'd had battles with getting him into school. There was a huge amount of anxiety and build up before that. Um, but he actually left the the school building at drop off my husband and I were dropping him off you know there were two of us that were needed to support him by this point and he fled the building and he went out into a main road in front of a four by four thankfully wasn't hurt didn't get hit but it could have been a very very different story and at this point we realized that we were just in complete crisis and this is the narrative experience that so many families get to perhaps not in the same way but that level of failure and misunderstanding and difficulty meeting need um, for a variety of reasons, partly because of knowledge and resources and all the rest of it. But it leads to catastrophic failure. It leads mm. to long term implications for well-being and mental health. And um, 
I think when I talk to late, late diagnosed adults who are neurodivergent, what becomes very, and I myself am, uh, and I, I identify as being ADHD now and recognize lots of traits within myself as an ADHD. My husband's a late diagnosed autistic and there's so much around understanding of self and acceptance of self that comes um, when you know how your brain ticks and how mm. you work. And you're also able to meet your needs with a lot more compassion and a lot more understanding and acceptance. Um, and we miss that for our kids. And that's that's the same story that unfortunately we write. That's the narrative that we write. We're asking square pegs to fit into round holes and the consequences are catastrophic at times and, and can be life-changing. Um, and so both of my children now are educated out, outside of the education system and settings, um, either via um, alternative provision or home education. So Arthur has a package called um, EOTAS, Education Other Than at School, very much play-based, very much interest-led now. Um, and then my eldest, Rory, came out to be able to home, be home educated, to, to sort of fulfil um, what he needed from mm. a learning and a, a well-being perspective too. Um, and and that is the narrative that we write, unfortunately, and it's time we really rewrite that to, to one of more equitable provision mm. um, because our diverse brains are incredible. You know, we, yes. we need diverse yes, brains. Yes, we, we need do. It. Oh, my goodness. We've got um, a world that needs to be <laughs> completely reimagined and we need we need people that see things differently and that are divergent thinkers. What, what is, I'm, I'm sure. So within the structures that um, families come up against and school and education being a massive one, uh, childcare education, I'm sure there's so many factors that are um, barriers and that create um tension and that make things difficult this kind of round peg square hole but would if you could boil it down to two or three like what are the biggies that really um are really causing so much um difficulty for these kids and their parents that potentially could be re-looked at reimagined there's a couple of things, but I think the main thing that it comes down to is social expectation mm. um, and, and kind of typical social expectations in particular. So um, I think we feel like we need to fit in this box of should, you know, we, we kind of should all over ourselves, don't we? We all of the time thinking about what we should be doing or how it should be looking or how we should be parenting our children or how children should be educated. Um, but what I've learned as a as a same parent is that actually as we deconstruct some of that should there's not always anything other than it's what we've done historically that sits underneath yeah. that yeah but when we place quite a bit of pressure on ourselves to kind of conform to that it can become very difficult to give ourselves what we need when we're diverse um so i think that's a massive massive factor um but there are a couple of other things that, that probably sit really close to that. And one of them is sensory experiences. Um, so we all have really diverse profiles of, of sensory processing. We all take in information from our external world and environment about sensory information. We take in information from within our bodies about our environments as well. We have eight sensory systems that feed into what we do and how we do it. 
and they tell us about whether or not we're safe and whether we need to respond to things. Um, and for many um, neurodivergent people, their experience of processing sensory information is very different and they have different thresholds for responding to sensory information. And that can elicit real um, fear and anxiety responses. You know, sat deep within the central nervous system. It's, it's a real like survival strategy. Um, and so when we expose ourselves to overstimulating or difficult to process information um, in sensory environments, be that out in the community or within schools, etc., um, that can be really anxiety inducing. But again, I think it comes down to being able to feel confident enough to meet your need. Do mm -hmm. I feel safe and confident and able enough to actually withdraw myself from the situation to put in my um, noise reducing um, headphones or my ear defenders or something if the noise here is too much? I know that I can come out of here for 10 minutes, fill up my cup and then come back and feel okay. Have I overpeopled today? Mm -hmm. Am I struggling with the fact that it's too warm or too cold? Is that a difficult sensory experience? So sensory experiences definitely come into it, but if we feel better able and more empowered to respond to meeting that need, um, which kind of comes down to the social expectation thing, yeah, then actually it doesn't become so much of a barrier. It doesn't become so much of a problem. So I think that's what underpins an awful lot of what those experiences are as well. Mm. What about the the structure of um, of things? Like, you know, being at certain places on time, being at certain places every single day, like the how, how, how society is structured is still relatively um, – the way it's always been done you know we operate on these kind of monday to friday nine to five school nine to three. like how does that um how does that fit within um the families that you're you're working with it, it doesn't yeah it's the simple answer you know because you know certainly for us if i speak from my own personal experience um with my family one of the reasons that we have chosen to educate our children differently and chosen to to be able to do things in a, in a slightly different timetable in a different way is because we need more flexibility um my kids need more recovery time yeah. for example than a neurotypical child may um so when they engage in some sort of learning or social experience the time in which they need to take to recover from that is more significant than for some of their peers. Um, and so it doesn't fit in a typical structured timetable. That said, my husband is one for real rigidity in yeah. routine. And he thrives on knowing where he needs to be at what a certain time and how he needs to do it. Because that part of the planning process for him mm. of knowing where, what and how something's going to happen is a really, really important part of managing um, anxiety and emotion and expectation for him too. Mm. Um, so I think it's it's such a diverse spectrum of need that it can depend on, on the individual, but conforming to somebody else's expectation doesn't always fit, often doesn't fit for yeah. neurodivergent families for sure. Yeah. So sort of operating in a system that can be very restrictive but at the same time kind of carrying those social expectations of I'm meant to do this everyone else is doing this and I'm gonna you know somehow be different and I'm not able to to fit in yeah. um 
it feels like joe that this is like a very much i don't know it feels like a tipping point of a new time in our understanding of neurodiversity um i don't know if you agree with that it it feels like um awareness is much higher conversation has a lot of momentum around it and it feels like perhaps we are a generation of parents who don't see kids as a homogenous blob we kind of are really quite tuned into their individuality their uniqueness however that kind of manifests itself um and 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 perhaps that's also contributing i suppose um i'd love to hear your point of view on that is 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 that because we because it doesn't fit because i guess what i'm getting at is it feels like the the support and the structures haven't changed as much as our um our empathy or understanding or knowledge um the way that parents are supporting and advocating kids there feels like a massive void there between the two things yeah, there's definitely a, a process of catching up, I think, that, yeah. that our society and systems need to do with, with that. And I think I think there's a couple of reasons that we've probably excelled um, as a generation, as a parenting generation, I suppose, in that area. And I think the pandemic has been a real helping yeah. factor in that, you know, right. say what we like about it. But actually, um, we, we brought about this focus around well-being, didn't we, mm. and mental health. And it was... And it was such a tipping point and a turning point of change for so many mm. people who who made a change to their lives and began to live their lives differently. And I think we now have a much better respect for the need for that flexibility and that need for nurturing ourselves and our own well-being much more. And as a generation, I think that's something that we, we typically kind of apply to our children or certainly I've noticed that it's it's a big change. You know, mental health is less of a taboo subject now yep. than it was going back even kind of 10 years ago. Um, so I think that that sits at the center of it. And I think being able to recognize the impact that poor well-being and poor mental health has on people's um, uh, ability to to function in the world and to to feel good and to go out and do what they need to do for themselves. Um, so I think it's really important that that with that focus on well-being, we we put self-awareness and self-acceptance at the centre of it, don't we? Because that's how we meet our own needs mm. ultimately. But the pandemic, I think, has been a real accelerator for that. Um, but I also think that there have been a lot of there's been quite high profile discussion from celebrities and from other people who we may not stereotypically have thought of as being neurodivergent. Yes. And 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 that has been a real um magnifier for a lot of people. Um, and I think it's made a lot of people who are in their 30s, 40s, 50s and beyond begin to question their own experiences. Um, and so it makes it more relatable. When we understand ourselves better, it makes it easier for us to relate to some of the difficulties and the challenges that, that neurodivergence can present mm. in a, a socially typical world for a lot of people. Um, so I think that that is that's also another factor. Yeah. Sure. How, do you think there is a a large proportion of people who I suppose just sort of categorize what might be neurodiverse as just like their quirks their kind of personality quirks their their characteristics because I definitely have quite a lot and that I've really sort of been very engaged by particularly the discussion in um 
women and women sort of getting diagnosed and ADHD in in adulthood and I suppose I'd love to hear your point of view on like do you like does does is there a benefit to being diagnosed and, and understanding that perhaps you fall into this group or this part of the spectrum or is is there just a more is there also a route that's just more about knowing yourself really well and honoring the way that your mind works without sort of going down a more sort of medically defined route, if that makes sense? I think the two things come hand in hand. I think okay. underneath everything, it very much sits around self-awareness, self-acceptance and understanding of self. Um, I think one of the things that's been really key for me is being able to accept that when there are barriers and challenges around some of the things that come about for me because of my ADHD profile, there are some really great parts, particularly in terms of running my own business around coming up with ideas and creativity yeah. and really just throwing myself into things. And there are some other significant factors that, you know, when I look back to my time in school, that kind of bring up some really uncomfortable feelings for me around, yeah. you know, would be great if she applied herself better, yeah. could, you know, could do more if she just paid attention or focused or met a deadline or whatever. And I've learned as an adult who understands my own profile, where I need support with that. And I've learned to forgive myself for those things as yeah. well and accept that that's just part of me. Mm -hmm. So I think it definitely comes hand in hand with the process of self-acceptance. I suppose the, the key part of, um, you know, this question of to label or not to label, do we do it? Is it useful? My friend, my friend refers to it as a, as a care label. It's like a washing instruction. Mm. A label is, is purely mm. about what we need and how we need mm. it. How are we going to take care of ourselves? And I think for many people, there's a process of identity mm. around being able to secure a diagnosis for yourself. And I also think that there are a lot of people who invalidate their own diagnoses mm. by not having a medical diagnosis, mm. by identifying as rather than going through the process. For me personally, I don't feel like there's anything that I don't know about myself or can't understand about myself. And there aren't any needs that I can't meet through knowing those things about yeah. myself without a formal diagnosis. But for my husband, by comparison, it's a really important and validating factor for him to go through the diagnostic process. And it also opens doors for him for access to more support and access to more understanding as well. You know, people are more understanding when we come and say, I am diagnosed as, or I have a diagnosis of, um, and we label it. Somehow we accept it better, don't we, in mm. certain circumstances? But I think it's a really personal thing. And I yeah. think it, it depends on which side of the coin you sit. If it's an important part of defining your identity, then diagnosis is something that is important to pursue. Mm. But if it's something that you are comfortable with as it is and accepting of, then you may not need it. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, really interesting. Um, and I suppose people also maybe feel a sense of, um, I don't know if peace is the right word, but almost like a kind of, um, oh, like, oh, that explains everything <laughs> kind of yes. feeling. Yeah. 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 It's relief, isn't it? I relief, think a yeah. a definite sense of relief of, 
oh my god that's why I do that or that's why this this happens for me in this way or that's why I've always struggled with this and I watch those light bulbs happen as I have conversations with people so much so much whether it's about themselves or their children um actually understanding that there's a neurological process there's a neurological nature to those things that make you you yeah yeah somehow really validating yeah definitely I um so I have a background in children's research and I always used to love um hanging out with neurodiverse kids because they had the best ideas um and just limitless and I just wondered like it's such a it's such a superpower I hope this isn't a cliche but it's such a superpower it's something that we really need in so many industries um just we're, we're desperate we're desperate for it and I just wondered like what what have you seen in action that enables the the those those superpowers those you know those really interesting magical things that these these gifts that these kids have what what type of settings interactions activities or approaches allows that to really come come into its own and allows them to lean into it I think it depends on the profile yeah there's an awful lot of creativity for um a lot of people that comes hand in hand with neurodivergence particularly from a dyslexic thinking perspective so Mm. dyslexic thinking is something that's now been added as a skill on LinkedIn right um, which is amazing as a skill Um, yeah yeah you can actually list it as a skill in your kind of bio wow that's quite an that's quite an insight into the future isn't it I think I'd love to see more of that like yeah being able to list some of those characteristics as desirable hireable specific skills definitely and i and there are certain companies um who specifically look for neurodivergent thinkers as well you know i think um google microsoft are a couple just just to you know name a couple there but um richard branson's been another real driver behind some of this dyslexic thinking side of things as a dyslexic himself and um and i think that there are real superpowers that can come with divergent thinking and and diverse thought processes creativity being one of them experiential hands-on learning um and delivery things that are logical as well Mm -hmm. are another another thing you know particularly from an autistic brain perspective being able to get from A to B with the logical process of thinking is is a massive skill for things like IT or engineering, um, real brilliant skill sets. Um, but there is a kryptonite that comes with that yeah. power as well. And I think that that's always important to recognize and balance out. Yeah, I think that whilst we need to recognize the the massive superpower that can come with a diverse brain type, because of the nature of being in a typical world with those typical social expectations there are parts of that social environment and that sensory environment and there are parts of the the um expectations that are placed that mean that parts of the challenges with fitting in with that typical process can feel like kryptonite Mm. And there can be very significant challenges underlying that. And some of the work that we're, you know, we're doing with um, with Sensory and with the training and consultancy arm of the business at the moment is around increasing what we do for inclusion in businesses. Mm. So being able to support people to understand not just the superpowers that we have with diverse thinking and diverse brain types, 
but that when we create the right culture and the right environment yeah that's when it becomes a superpower but without that we're really not providing an accessible and inclusive environment and it is about the culture it is about saying i recognize that this could be a great skill for my company to have or um for an individual to have but without a culture of being able to say well what can we do to make that a superpower and not a kryptonite factor you, it's never going to be successful because and you also put you... the most creative brain yeah sorry, put the most creative brain into a space that needs it but if the environment's not right they're not going to thrive and, and you're not going to be able to get the best out of that exactly anyway. exactly and it's um it's an attitude of meeting people where they're at in terms of yeah they have this skill but it's not it doesn't live alone it's not in isolation it comes with the whole person and if you yeah. want to plug that in and you want to to leverage that and access it then you have to meet the whole person where they're yes. at to to allow that to to flourish um yeah absolutely tell talk to me a bit about play um this is what this podcast is all about um i think one of the most frequent questions that i get is the role of play in children's development is it different for um, autistic children, ADHD children, children with disabilities? The long and the short answer to that is no. So I think it's in the how. The, yeah. the magic is in the how, isn't it? Ultimately, every child learns through play. Every child learns through something that is fun, that has is sparked by intrinsic motivation. And, and that's basically what play is, isn't it? And not every child will play in the same way with the same things. We're all driven to, you know, whether we look at kind of schematic play with different yeah. types of approaches, it, it really comes down to how. But play is just as important and just as fundamental. And if not more so, I would say for, for neurodivergent brains, um but there's a process of unstructured play i guess that is just glorious when it comes to supporting children's development and tells us so much about what's happening from a neurodevelopmental point of view as well um and being child-led in so we're very child-led in our therapy provision as well much of what we do often doesn't look like therapy and i always say that good therapy is an art form um, everything that we do is play-based and it can look like we're just running around and having a brilliant time but in actual fact there's you know 20 million things running through yeah. my brain about how we can adapt stuff or where we might kind of challenge things and the beauty of unstructured opportunities for play is that you can lead children into a place where they're naturally motivated to be which is where developmental challenges can come in it's where you can create more challenges and more opportunities to bring in a bit of structure to narrow it down and to progress some developmental opportunities um but play is just fundamental it's fundamental to everything that we do we just play in a different way as adults don't we yeah could you explain joe what unstructured play looks like maybe give an example of ha like an unstructured play time activity versus a structured one because i think this is so important and i think this is for all children in the this sort of evolution of play is that play has become more structured more manufactured more adults interfering with it but i i think it's it's really helpful to to really like drill down to what that actually means 
So when we structure play, it's got a beginning, middle and an end. And I, I suppose as adults leading the play, we would have a clear outcome and a goal of what we might want to see or achieve through that process of play. When we unstructure play, it can be in different ways. We could, we could still have an idea about what that outcome or that goal might be, but the way in which that is achieved has less bounds, I suppose. And sometimes we think of unstructured, unstructured play as being um, with objects that can mean different things or be different things. So they don't necessarily have a set purpose. Or we might do crazy things with um, things that do have a set purpose. We might do something completely different with it. It's about allowing imagination and motivation to lead the process of play without it necessarily having any strict bounds or boundaries about where that might have to go and when we do that we start to spark these opportunities for i guess neurons in the brain areas yeah. of, of neurodevelopment to really cement to lay down and to to target towards strength as well so i i talk about this being a bit like a spider's web um in my book um it's called Equipping Send Children for Life, if anyone wants to have a look. But I talk about the, the spider's web as an analogy for learning and development through play. Um, and we tend to get really good at laying these fibres or threads across the spider's web, and it gets more complex as we go on. And when we unstructure play, we get to do the bits that are really good at laying those fibres down. But what we also see is where those gaps are. And, and a lot of our children are very good at putting us into those gaps, filling those gaps so that they don't have to lay those threads. And when we open up to unstructured play where anything could happen and we allow ourselves to actually just take stock and observe what's being led by the child, we can also see where that support is needed, which mm. I think is also fundamental. And that's really easy to miss because a lot of our children, particularly neurodivergent children, are very good at scaffolding those bits where the threads mm. aren't strong. And we will be the scaffolding for them. Wow. So what so your so these experiences, they're fluid, there's no goal, the child is leading them. And within that, you're able to observe where they need support in their everyday lives from what's happening within their play. Yes, because that you wouldn't have been able to see that without the unstructured play. No, particularly because if we put structure in place, we're asking children to conform and it's very, very difficult then to know whether or not they disengage from an activity because they haven't got the skills to do it or because they're not interested and motivated to do Mm. it. And those are two very different things. I, I, I would argue they also come hand in hand in some ways, you know, all of us are driven to do things that we're good at and that we're successful at and can be successful at. Um, but it's definitely easier to recognise where we are bridging the gap mm. when when you take out the factor of structure there. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And a, and a child who is um, has a profile um, perhaps of autism or ADHD, what, what is the impact of one of those kids who gets access to a lot of unstructured play versus a child that doesn't like do is, is there a notable uh difference and could could you explain what it is i would i would say so i think for some children who need structure and routine they will often try and in, it, i 
say enforce, I don't mean enforce in that way, but they will, they will manifest an opportunity to create that structure and routine that they need. And that might be around them telling you what you need to do for them or instructing how play might happen. And they might add their own structure into play. Um, so for other children where we impose structure, it can feel like demand and it can be anxiety inducing, particularly when we're asking them to fill in skills within that spider's web where you've got threads missing, where, where the threads aren't strong, they've not been laid down consistently and regularly. That can be really anxiety inducing. And, and the way that I find to relate to that is, you know, if you walk into a room and you think, why am I here? And there's that blank there's that blank moment and no matter how much you think about it you don't know what you're there for but if you imagine being in that situation where you don't know what comes next or you don't know what someone's expecting of you and you don't know how to fill that gap you don't know how to bridge it mm. that's scary mm. and there's pressure and it's demand induced and it's difficult so when we release some of that structure we also release some of the anxiety that sits around it um, and because of that we naturally improve engagement. And when we improve engagement, we build trust as well, because you become a safe person in, in that child's life. Mm. And that's when we can start to challenge some of those, um, those gaps. We can bridge some of those gaps and start to build some skills that fill them and lay down those threads as well. So there's a real difference in, um, I suppose, with engagement typically and well-being and happiness in unstructured play for a lot of particularly autistic children. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a balance to be had as well between where some semi-structure needs to come in. Yeah. Sometimes more so with ADHD children, um, but not always. It depends on the profile. But we do sometimes need semi-structure. You know, kids need to know what is the gap that you're wanting me to fill sometimes sometimes that open-ended nature is also anxiety inducing so it's really about looking at, at the individual in front of you as well yeah it's it's interesting so i talk a lot about play preferences play style play personality and it's all it's it's sort of i suppose relatable to what you're saying it's like how do you how do you enjoy playing do you do you like to know what you've got to do do you like to free roam and have completely no rules and 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 it be open there's there's um there's a there's a sort of preference like it's yeah I mean yes I'm, I'm sure it all ties back to how your brain is wired but it's quite nice to just look at it as like what do you prefer <laughs> like what yeah. what makes it more fun for you yeah and and for for me as a therapist the art is then knowing why yes from a neuro perspective because that's where we can scaffold support mm. but actually when we're just looking at engagement and trust building and social connection and relationships being led by what works for the child is so fundamental mm. so within play obviously there's so many different um endless versions of how how we play with materials toys um games all sorts of things and then um nature is another one getting outside um touching and feeling climbing interacting with with natural environments which i know is something that you do in your not-for-profit could you tell us a little bit about the magic of 
playing in nature specifically like what is unique and special for the kids that you are working with um and supporting what's what's really key for 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 playing in nature for them it's multi-sensory and enriching for starters so we can often adapt the environment to what is needed Mm. so that might be that we change up the sensory experiences you know we we might um, bring in more movement it might be that some of our children we need to get outside we need to run we need to explore we need to touch things smell things look around in order to regulate and I talk about this as being a little bit like a seesaw and what everybody needs to be able to balance their seesaw to be able to focus and and, um, engage in an activity is different but what nature gives us is this this kind of blank canvas really it gives us a blank canvas for do we need to run and move do we need to bring in something that's more grounding and calming as a sensory experience but there's also something really freeing about not having four walls around us and if you are a a child or young person who has been put into anxiety inducing situations where you've been asked to conform and do things that are difficult for you something about being in nature frees those bounds a little bit and opens up this platform for just feeling a bit better you don't feel quite so confined um, in nature so lots of really enriching experiences that mean that we can meet a sensory profile or meet a sensory need um, and really go with the flow so it it opens up that process of structured or semi um, sorry unstructured or semi-structured play Mm. um, as well really beautifully and it lends itself to that and even if the weather is bad we have um, uh, like an open door on a a barn so we have indoor facilities but there's still free flow access to the outside and it still feels very much sort of at one with nature I suppose in that space but I also love the fact that there's lots of spontaneous opportunities Mm. as well so there's always something you can always whether it's seasonal and to do with the leaves or the forage that's growing or anything like that but it's also about things like um what the weather's doing or what the creatures are that you can see or what stage of their life cycle they're in there's always spontaneous opportunities to bring things in and that becomes novel and exciting and fun and that also helps from an engagement point of view Mm. as well nature's always got something going on yeah and what is a therapy pony? Because I feel like I need one. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone needs one. <laughs> what is that? So we run um, a facility that delivers equine facilitated learning um, and equine facilitated therapy. Equine so, facilitated learning. Yeah. Wow. So what we, does that involve? If you think about the horse as a modality for learning and play and activity. Um, and I hate to use that word because they're not tools, they're team members when we, you know, when we work with them and their welfare is very, very central to what we do. Um, but we have a team of seven therapy ponies who we have four miniature Shetlands and then three bigger ones wow. um, that support the process of what we do. And horses are incredible, particularly for things like emotional literacy and social communication, um, because they mimic our facial expressions. They have the right. same combinations of facial expressions as we do. So it makes it easier for us to sort of interpret what they're, they're doing or feeling and the same for them with us. 
Um, but it's also not really complicated with language either. Um, there's no need for conversation there because we can actually just sit back and observe an awful lot of what happens. But because they're prey animals, they also pick up on things like changes in our heart rate and our breathing patterns. So they pick up on whether we're feeling anxious or excited about something, or even the thought of something might change our demeanor and our body language. And they're really good magnifiers for that stuff too. Um, so our team of, of therapy ponies is, I suppose, specially selected for their temperament and their engagement. They're all very different in their personality types, their ages and their backgrounds. Um, but we purely work with them in an unmounted way as well. So none of them are ridden in our therapy um, service. They all um, support from the ground. Um, and we can do that in a very hands-off way through observation, or we can get up close and really think about what their responses are and what they might mean for how we're feeling or responding. And again, it's that novel factor. They are, there is something around the encouragement process that they mm. bring um that is amazing for for kind of therapy and learning when there's typical barriers there really and i think you said social social skills social skills did you say that yeah, social, social literacy in 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 what way like what what benefits do you see if a child is doing this regularly what what do they learn that they wouldn't necessarily pick up in a classroom with a bunch of kids so What's incredible is being able to take those moments of observation for what's happened with body language or what have you noticed with facial expression or how have they turned towards you or away from you or how are they responding to each other in the herd. Um, and by generating those conversations, we can start to build skills in understanding one another and interpreting one another. And as I say, because we take the process of verbal language out of that an awful lot and we just deal with what we're seeing in front of mm. us, it's not complicated in comparison um so because there's so much relatability between horses and humans that's a really nice way of building observation skills of understanding the world of being able to interpret what we see and experience with other human beings as well in a way that's less threatening less complicated less scary sometimes mm. as well that's fascinating i've never heard about that before were you um into horses bef before yeah did you grow so up with I, horses i i did to a certain extent yeah so i i started riding when i was about five um and kind of ducked in and out for years and then my 30th birthday present to myself slash from my mum was my um huge and very wonderful ginger x racehorse pilgrim who um sort of changed my perception and understanding of how we can work and be with horses really he'd obviously come from a fairly stressful career in the racing industry and, and had quite a lot of health needs when he initially came to me um and we just stripped everything back and have sort of gone through this process and journey of of learning and understanding one another um which then opened me up to looking at how i could work from a therapy point of view with um with horses as part of the team and I went and studied, did a master's level qualification in something called hippotherapy. So hippos is Greek for horse. So we use the movement of the horse to challenge posture and balance reactions and things with children um, with physical disabilities. And so work either with live ponies for that as a ridden activity or primarily now I choose to work with mechanical simulator, mechanical horse simulator. 
um, for those sessions. And then it's all just sort of snowballed and evolved from there with somehow gaining seven ponies and yeah, you got, acres you, of land. You've got a whole herd, girl. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And how many kids are you are you getting in there to come and do this? So we have a we have a really wide ranging um, service for children with a variety of different needs. And on average, we probably support at the minute anywhere between 20 and 30 families a week. Um, there's obviously limitations to how much our yeah. herd can do. Some of it's not all um, face to face and hands on with the horses. Some of it is about more kind of pure th- physiotherapy delivery out in nature as well. But um, yeah, we're a busy and growing site with a never ending list of demand, quite mm. honestly. Um, and we like to be able to extend some of that to just knowing that being out in nature and in the space for adults and for same parents in particular, being able to hold space with each other is just as important. So we've we've run some retreats um, for some parents too, where, where they can come and have the same experiences with the horses and we can sit in front of a fire and have a hot chocolate and a biscuit and a nice lunch and, and some time together, um, just to hold a bit of space and time for, for one another too. So, which I think as adults is super important. Super important and has an impact on the kids as well, yes. that those adults are nourished and, and rested and inspired themselves. And um, what would you say, just um, before we close out, what would you say is the role of play between parent and child for for neurodiverse kids? It, it's a method for communication, for nurturing and for support is such a fundamental part of relationship building because it doesn't impose the same level of demand as communication and interaction outside of play. It brings in an element that makes everybody feel relaxed and it's a modality for building relationships and understanding one another. And I think one of the things that I notice with my own kids is the times that I am completely wrapped up in needing to do something on the to-do list or requiring something of them by a particular time or in a particular way, the times when I'm not present and actually play allows me to sit down even if just for a short snippet of time but it allows me to sit down and actually have quality moments of being present with the kids Mm. and that it's often in those moments that something is shared be it just a nice hug and a bit of a chat or something that's a bit more profound that's been sat with them for a while um and that structures a, a relationship of nurturing and trust as well. Um, so it's great from a therapeutic point of view, but it's it's also and a developmental point of view, but it's also really fundamental, I think, for connection. And in a world where things are a little bit wobbly and a bit scary for a lot of our neurodiverse children, actually having those moments of connection and safety are so fundamental. Yeah, yeah. And quality over quantity, would you say, is yeah. is better for those moments? Yeah, there's still quite a, a level of intense social interaction and cognitive demand that goes with play, particularly one-to-one play. Yeah. Sometimes less so than in a small group scenario for a lot of neurodivergent children. But the, there is a process by which attention and regulation probably isn't going to be sustained for a significant period of time. So always, you know, quality over quantity for sure. Yeah. Um, and knowing when to call it a day, it's totally okay. Yeah. And what what would you, what are your hopes for 
for what happens next with education, with um, nurturing our SEN children within our culture and our societies? What what would you like to see happen? Because I know also a big part of what you do you are um you're you're rallying in government aren't you and you're put you're you're putting the heat on what what's on your what's on your agenda on your on your wish list for changes I think um I think making noise is really important and I often think about this as a legacy of change you know I I recognize realistically that some of the changes that we need to achieve around acceptance and um advocacy and education for our send children are not going to happen overnight mm. Um, But for me, the fundamental place that it starts is through knowledge and understanding and a a place of human connection, understanding where we come from and why we come from that place. So as a starter, I think it's really important that we are lobbying to improve what happens from a training and a support process for education professionals as well, who are often at the forefront of delivery and support, Um, you know, actually for some of us education professionals will spend more time in a week with our kids than we will as parents so they need to be well equipped and well supported to be able to do more and understand Mm. more for uh for our children and for families as well and know that the system is kind of set against us at the moment particularly in terms of finance and resources more money is always helpful yeah but actually, if we can have more compassion and support from a place of understanding and knowledge, that's a really great place to start. Mm. So I would love to see training for um, education professionals, but all education professionals, not just teachers, but encompassing that culture of inclusion yeah. within a school. So for TAs and one-to-one supports, for lunchtime staff, for office staff, for everybody to have a better understanding about a diverse nature of need and about how we can support that need and for that to be a routine process for every education setting a requirement for every education setting not just a paper pushing process and a yeah. exercise it's got to come from a place of culture and is there, are other children important in that as well educating other yes. children that are interacting with their send send peers because you know everyone always says don't they oh children can be so cruel and um you know they they can but the way that they are interacting through play you know they are by design meant to make mistakes and you know socially try things out get things wrong um and I think that it can be um like very difficult for them to to understand like that everyone responds to these social interactions differently. And it feels like there's a big need there to, to, to bring them in, in this awareness journey, if that, if that registers with you. Yeah, completely. And I think, you know, our send children become send adults at the end of the day, yeah. you know, and if what we are trying to do is to build a more culturally inclusive society, then it's also absolutely fundamental that we're supporting children to be with peers who understand their needs. Because without that, we can't hope for the next step in that legacy of change to actually be successful. Um, So an understanding for for children and young people about diversity of need is really important too. Mm. And it raises self-awareness for anybody. That's the whole point of inclusion. It's not excluding children and young people who don't have sin. It, it's actually working for everybody that's that's what I mean and I think understanding that um there is a spectrum 
and we're all on it somewhere um and we may we're all yeah we may have a particular categorization we may um be somewhere on that where it sort of significantly impacts us in quite obvious ways for others less so but just have like the just the the like the the built-in knowledge and empathy and intuitive understanding that we're like all our minds work differently our imagination works in a different way our creativity manifests differently our um, evaluation of of situations all looks differently to one another I think it's so exciting and it's just so it's so fascinating and it's I think reassuring like we're we're sort of conditioned to all sort of be the same and do the same and follow this and these are the conventions and I really do believe that a greater understanding and empathy of neurodiversity is the the route to us all being able to to bust off some of the shackles that that we're bound to that we don't really want to be yeah I completely agree and I think you know by by understanding the nature of diversity within each and every one of us it it doesn't we have to be careful not to undermine the that kryptonite factor yes, and challenge yes. that is experienced by neurodiverse um, people. But certainly understanding that we each have a diverse profile, we each need to do things differently and we each have different thresholds of tolerance when it comes to sensory processing and information makes it easier for us to relate to one another and understand and accept one another as human beings. Yeah. And makes us more unique. I think particularly, you know, we're looking at an AI future, mm-hmm. uh, a very sort of robotic um, sort of world that's going to be able to think for us. The fact that we can own our own diverse profile of how we think, how we create, how we imagine, how we show up in the world. Um, I think is is ever is increasingly important. Yeah, definitely. We we really need that, don't we? We do. Jay, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge, sharing your time. Um, tell us about your book. Your book is out. Congrats. It is out. Tell us yeah. what it's called, where the thank good people you. can find it. So it's just it's on Amazon. It's equipping send children for life. We were lucky enough to go to number one on launch day. So it's an Amazon bestseller. Which Congratulations. Thank you very much. <laughs> so equipping send children for life, and it's suitable for so it's it's designed primarily for education professionals, but there's a lot in there for parents as well. Yeah. There's a lot of relatability about journeys, about understanding um, need and being able to really sort of get to grips with some of the questions that you might have about yourself or your own children and your own diversity, really. So, yeah. Brilliant. We will put it in the show notes um, and we will also link your not-for-profit Send Story um, and people can find you on Instagram. Yes, yeah. Joe McSen Physio. I am on Instagram. So perfect. It's been a pleasure talking to you, Joe, and thank you for everything that you're doing. And I definitely want to come and pay, pay you and your herd of ponies a visit sometime. You're welcome. Anytime. <laughs>